This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast where we revisit sci-fi, fantasy, and just plain weird shows. This week, Nightmare Cafe, episodes five and six. Well, I ain't scared of dying. I'm just scared of going before things are right. You know, like my dad. Then what about your dad? Where is he? Well, after I got hurt, they told him I was already a goner. Brain dead. He couldn't handle it. So him and mom broke up. Maybe we can do something about your dad. Promise? I can't promise anything. Except I'll do my best. That you've got my word on. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast that's been at it for two years. I'm Luke. Here's my co-host, Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Please call me Papa Big Cheese. Papa Big Cheese? Can you believe it, Papa Big Cheese? We've got two years of these episodes done. <laughs> Papa Big Cheese, huh? It was good. A good, uh, good nickname for sure. Speaking of nicknames, do you have any nicknames in your high school? Or grade school? Me? Yeah. I don't think so. Did you have nicknames? Uh, I'm, I probably have said it before on this, but I did, I did make a mistake in like, I think it was grade seven or grade eight where I decided it'd be a good idea to shave my head. Okay. And then people, people would call me chemo kitten. Oh, I do remember this now. That was a unfortunate nickname. It's, it's also not the most sensitive nickname ever, but it was the nineties. It was a different time. (laughs) There's a real uh, generation X going on at your high school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No one called you like four eyes specky but me is that what you think my nickname was yeah uh well not that i recall but uh, i mean maybe behind my back anyway jordan before we get into it i just want to say it's amazing isn't it two years i know i can't believe it we've done it it's uh it's been really it's been really good well uh we're probably gonna have a little a little break but we're gonna figure that out a little bit later we'll have a we'll figure out some announcements let you know what's going on but f- for today we're gonna focus on nightmare cafe yeah, because that, that, that's we want to go strong and by, by, by watching this not very good show. I know. What a way to end. What a way to end the second year. Yeah. Um, speaking of, how about we do a little recasting of Old Nightmare Cafe? It's a real simple one to recast because there's only three characters. But I think the tone is going to be the thing that trips us up on this. I, I do agree. Um, I think how you choose to see the film is going to come down to the director i'm sure but like yeah i've i definitely have made a choice in my tone okay so jordan let's let's do some recasting so it's 2020 we're doing a big blockbuster movie um it's the first thing that goes into production once the pandemic ends yeah it's it's west craven's son is like how can i uh squeeze a few more dollars out of my dead dad's body <laughs> that's terrible but <laughs> accurate but you know everyone needs to get paid that's true well that's what he always says he walks into rooms he's like hey guys everybody's got to get paid <laughs> so uh we've got three to cast here we got frank nolan we got pay peronovic and we've got blackie so you want to start with uh frank nolan yeah i have two picks for frank what do you have i also have two picks okay so let's go like we usually do one 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 great i have two actors that I think have 
some similar sensibilities in terms of uh, the tone I thought would work for this. The first being Ben Stiller. Oh, yeah. Who might be a little too old for the role, I'll admit. I will say, when I was casting this, I realized the ages of the actors really don't matter in this. Yeah, I thought the same thing, because they're supposed to be uh, ostensibly, like, what, late 30s? I was going to say early 30s, late 20s, but... Okay, well there, well there we are. So it's it's probably in that range of thirties anyway. But I, I do think like their age is so minimal to most of these plots. Like it was the one thing when I was casting this up, I'm like oh, I can literally put anyone in this movie. It doesn't matter. We'll write around it. No, no, you're right. So who who do you have? If if I have Ben Stiller, interesting choice. I I went with someone who I think fits more who the show thinks Frank Nolan is. I think. Oh yeah, is it more of a tough guy? I cast Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds, yeah. He's handsome. Yeah. He's funny. He's not that funny. It's He's handsome. He thinks he's very funny. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, I think both of those are at least on the same sort of wavelength. So I'll, I'll throw out my second one, who I think it also kind of works. I don't hate either of those first two picks. But again, maybe too old for the role, but based on his youthful charm, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd? That's not a bad choice. I think I see where you're going, and you are definitely leaning i mean not that ryan reynolds doesn't lean to the comedy side but your two choices certainly lean more into like this is a more of a broad comedy this is going to be a an anchor man definitely leaning more into the comedy i think it's sort of supposed to be maybe like a, a black comedy and i just thought some actors who might be able to pull it off but but yes i i think less of the horror more of the comedy so who do you think my final pick was uh, i i ended up going with someone with a little more gravitas i think it would make the film a little more um dramatic perhaps i uh, i picked Lawrence olivier i picked michael b jordan yeah okay maybe i think he's the bit of the outlier on these four picks yeah i would agree he i think he brings a certain gravitas it sounds like we're leading more to the like comedy light-hearted version of it so maybe we need to look at the first three well i'll tell you what why don't we do this before we choose that why don't we go Faye and then see who makes the most sense as a duo Sure, sounds good. So uh, here's my first pick for uh, Pei Peronovich. I went with Florence Pugh. Oh, okay. Well, she's in every movie ever, so it's a it's a good choice. She's she's a she's a hot commodity. It definitely puts Faye a little on the younger side. I don't think that's a bad thing. I she's great in Little Women. Why not? I chose someone somewhat similar, but again, maybe leaning more into the comedy was, uh, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, so excuse me, the actress currently in uh, uh, Killing Eve, Jodie Comer? Comer? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if she's a, a lead in any movies right now, but I thought maybe she'd work for the role. She's done some big budget ones, I think, so I think she, I don't think that's out of the question. My, my second choice was maybe a little more in the, I don't know, maybe this is a little more in the gravitas side of things, but I, I had Jessica Chastain. I don't know. I guess it really depends on what the tone of this movie is. I Unless she's like, she's like yelling at her agent. How come I don't get any comedies? How come I don't know anything weird? <laughs> Maybe she is. And Who they're knows? like, oh, we got the crappy script for you. <laughs> Do you remember Nightmare Cafe? And she's like, no, I wasn't even born. <laughs> who's, who's your last choice? Somewhat on the same lines of Killing Eve, I thought... Oh, you know who might actually be good and get this weird sort of dark tone is the original writer herself, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Oh, that's an interesting choice, actually. Well, I'm leaning in two directions on this, on this, on this duo. Okay. Do you want to hear my thoughts on it? Yeah. I think one way to go is to go Ryan Reynolds and Jodie Comer. I feel like mm-hmm. they make a good pair. Yeah. 
Or I think opposite of that, maybe in the dark comedy side of it, it's Paul Rudd and Phoebe Waller-Bridges. Is that her name? Bridge. I think it's just it's just one bridge. Fair enough. Do we keep going to try to figure out what this movie is? Or do we, we nail it down now and go, no, we need the financing. We need these actors. I think we should nail it down now. I think what we choose of these two will dictate the tone. Personally, I think Ryan Reynolds is too much of his own thing. Yeah, I mean, that's what he's bringing to the show. And who? so who's your other pick? Oh, it's Michael B. Jordan. Yes, and I, I think we've moved past. I think him and Jessica Chastain are, are off the table. I think something else we cast, we put Michael B. Jordan, didn't we? Probably. He's in everything. Well, are we are we going with Paul Rudd? Is that a big enough uh, is that a big enough name to put on the marquee? Oh yeah, uh, Ant Man himself. <laughs> You're right, Ant Man himself. Yeah. So is it Paul Rudd and Phoebe Waller Bridge? Is that is that where we're going? I think Burnett's all the way. I think that's the best dark comedy casting version of this. That's like a movie. If you saw those two together, you'd be like, "Oh, it looks bad, but maybe I'll watch it." That's 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 the quote underneath the movie. Looks bad, but maybe. I mean, with those two, you'd consider it. So here's going to be, to finish the trivecta, the important person. Who's going to play Blackie? You have to one-up Robert Englund. This was a tough one, because I was like, who is 2020's horror film icon? I think we talked about this earlier in the week, and I said, it's still Robert Englund. I mean, that's certainly on the table, I think. But I, I did try to come up with like, who who has the filmography that fills those shoes? So. Well, why don't I give you my first one? And I, I don't know if this person quite works, but I was thinking who could really make the most of, you know, a couple minutes here and there. And I went with Christopher Walken. Oh, yeah, I could see that. But a bit older, definitely a bit of a geriatric, but it could work. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's supposed to be like 700 years old, right? So why not pick someone who kind of looks like that? I was trying to think, like, who's, who's done uh, a big movie monster lately? So I went with Bill Skarsgård, uh, the guy who played It. <laughs> well, no, that definitely is an odd tone. Is he, is he going to be, like, having his one eye wandering? I think you really do go, I think you do play off of him as uh, he, that creepy clown you know and love. Well, you know what's funny? You kept the idea of casting Blackie as someone who was um, a uh, sort of horror icon. I kind of just went away from that i'll give my second pick i thought it would really change the tone of blackie it's going to be a lot quieter a lot kind of more snarky sarcastic comments bill murray the real charlie's angel style uh introduction hopefully a little better than that but yes (laughs) i mean he'll only do one line reading a day but can do drama can do comedy you know he's he's somewhere in the middle we'll see how you feel about this i when i came up with this name I felt like I'd hit gold on it. I don't know if you'll feel the same way. But my my final choice for Blackie is Doug Jones. Oh, yeah. So because you think he's going to be wearing a lot of weird costumes? Well, I think, you know, he's the fish man. He's the Star Trek man. He he's kind of always has to. He's our Robert Anklin. He's always a movie monster these days. And he's all long and gangly. He'll look super weird. I don't know. I feel like there's something there's something to Doug Jones. He'd really bring some to the role. There is something to be said about as this show has progressed, especially into these last two episodes that we're going to talk about. Robert Englund is being asked to do more and more in terms of playing different characters. And maybe that does play up to Doug Jones of really, really going for it. Not only is he dressing up in a character, but he'll look completely different. Maybe he's playing a monster. Maybe he's playing a taxi driver. Maybe he's playing... Um, a bird or whatever it might be you know he'll always be looking real weird 
So I, I kind of like that pick. Why don't we just why don't we go with that with Blackie? Sure, I'm 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 on board. I'm on board for that. So finally, we have to pick the director, which I think will solidify what this movie is. Yeah, what the new Nightmare Cafe is. Uh, Wes Craven had a script laying around. It's all dusty. You know, it's got his son's footprints all over it. Well, my two picks are different, but in the same vein. And I was really trying to think of who is someone who comes to this project who brings like a sense of style, like something this show kept trying to have but never could quite land, but like someone who brings an elevated sense of style. I thought the same thing. I only have one pick, by the way. Okay, well, here's my first pick. And I don't think we get him, but it would be a hell of a movie. Wes Anderson. Wes, I, you know, I thought of that and I was like, ah, is it? Is it going to be that movie? I mean, it becomes a Wes Anderson movie, right? Yeah, well, and I think we'd have to recast if it was that. I think at that point, you're Michael B. Jordan, you're Jessica Chastain, and you're Bill Murray at that point. And I don't think it's quite the right fit. Well, why don't I give you mine? The director I went with is Alejandro G. Inaritu. Remind me, what what are his movies? What made me really think of it was Birdman. Ah, yes. And I thought, that might be, is that, I don't know if that's like a more adult version tone of this movie that uh, the series may or may not have wanted to be. Right, right. I mean, certainly he would bring, certainly the themes and the story would be more grown up, I think. It wouldn't be something like spread to a wider audience. Maybe, I mean, it would, but it would like also would be pretty like grown up, I think. I thought it might be interesting stylistically, but but who do you think for the second pick? My final pick in the same vein of like, who's going to elevate this and do something fun with the concept of a nightmare cafe michelle gondry oh i I think we have to do that i almost put spike jones down but i realized no 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 this is michael gondry all over it michelle gondry something like that he he's gonna like make this the wildest thing you've ever seen i think he's he's a great pick i didn't even think of him but uh no i i think he's uh he's the person to to helm this (laughs) this uh this blockbuster movie this 200 budget movie can you believe they gave us that much money I mean, it's it's going to be pretty good, I think. I think with Paul Rudd as Frank, we got uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge as uh, Faye. We got Doug Jones looking real weird as Blackie. I think it'll work. Yeah, and it's a good excuse to have a bunch of weird character actors pop up. You know, Michael Shannon pops up as a as a, a, a construction worker at some point. And, uh... Oh, yeah, there's definitely like all kinds of crazy cameos. Anyways, well, there, there's a movie. I mean, who doesn't want to see that? There is a movie. <laughs> there is a what was your other quote this is that there's a movie is the second uh quote for the movie yours is might be bad but maybe it looks not. bad but maybe i'll watch it yeah <laughs> that's right all right well that that's enough fun and games shall we get into this week's episodes i guess so <laughs> don't sound too excited <laughs> well here's the i'm to be summary for episode five sanctuary for a child the cafe brings Frank back to his hometown, where he befriends a boy whose comatose body lies in a town hospital. And that, of course, was courtesy of our dear friend Michael Hoffman. I was going to say, is that from Adam Anonymous? But that was a different show. That was a different show. <laughs> um, and let me just say right off the bat, episodes five and six of this show have such wildly different tones. It's jarring to have watched them back to back. Wildly different tones but both for some reason decide that the cafe now lives in a small rural town. Well, it's funny. We mentioned this, I think, in one of the first podcasts, maybe the first podcast we did on this, that that was one of the rules that I saw outlined. But this is the first two episodes where we see them go, maybe having the cafe at the end of this dock pier area 
it doesn't work, so let's just move it wherever it needs to go. Which, fine, it just seems weird that they're deciding now at the end of the season, but, you know, sure, why not? The reading I did on the show is I think, obviously, the quality wasn't great, but part of the reason it kind of died as well was there's a writer strike that kicked in. Oh, really? I wonder if they shot these two country episodes back to back because they're already in the country. Let's do like, you know, let's do both the country episodes. And perhaps if it had its 12 order, they would have put more space between the country episodes. So it didn't seem like so odd that now the now there's here's two back to back farming episodes. I feel like it's maybe more to do with just like, oh, we got canceled. And these were just the last two we shot. You're probably right. That makes a little bit more sense. Um, but yes, the uh, we get to see the cafe on the move, which is fun because as the cafe shows up, it's like TV static appears in the space it's going to be in. And like these wipes happen and the cafe kind of materializes out of TV static. Yeah, it sort of materializes bit by bit. It's like first the windows and then like the beams and then boom, the walls are up and then you got the cafe. And inside, we once again see like floating eggs whisking themselves and floating coffee making themselves before Faye and Frank materialize into the space. So again, we never, I think we discussed this before, but it's never been really explained what they're doing when they're not in the cafe. The assumption is just like they're in limbo, right? They don't even know. It's hard to say because as we see them here, they complain that Frank makes them open at dawn today. Like, or not Frank, Blackie. So they're complaining about the schedule Blackie set making them open the cafe at dawn. So where are they at night? (laughs) My thought was, are they, they're tired in the morning? But like, do they still get tired? Do they go to sleep? It's uh, many questions still arise from this show. Um, As they're sort of getting ready for the morning rush in the small town, a boy walks in. His name is Luke. That's my name too. You were so much like him. Yeah, we had a lot in common, me and him. I'm also <laughs> in a coma right now. <laughs> well, I think everyone watching the show feels that. But yeah, he walks in. It's clear pretty early on. He's a young kid. What is he, 12? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. He's uh, he's in the sandlot. <laughs> That's right. And uh, it's quite clear that he's hungry but doesn't really have money. And so instead of just giving the kid a meal, I guess, and making him feel bad, Frank's like, you can work for your food. I also laughed at that, too. I'm like, Frank, just give him some fucking eggs, buddy. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it's a way for them to bond, Luke. Yeah, that's true. But essentially what we learn is, like, he's he's run away from home, and Frank's just like, you know, maybe we should call your mom once you've eaten and done uh, had a little bit of breakfast. And when he kind of brings up the suggestion of calling his mom, uh, Luke vanishes in the cafe, which Frank is confused by. So he goes he goes to check the bathroom to see if maybe the kid went in there. It's as if he's never been in this cafe before. He's like, if someone vanishes, Frank, they haven't gone to the bathroom. (laughs) But as he steps into the bathroom, he enters a hospital room where he sees Luke in a coma. And worse yet, the hospital's in his hometown of Zion, a place he never wanted to return to. Yeah, at this point, I was like, oh, no, this is going to be the episode. It's going to be a kid dying. (laughs) And yes, yes, that's the episode. Bold move. I gotta give it to them. Bold move to, like, have it about a kid waiting to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's like, but wait a minute. He's here. I'm there. And he, you, me, eggs. What? Luke has been in a coma for a, more than a year. The nurse at the place basically says he has two days left to live. And uh, Frank, you know, starts talking to the, I guess it's the ghost or the spirit of the boy or his consciousness. And the kid's not really afraid of dying so much. But what he's worried about is putting things right. Uh, after he was declared brain dead, his dad split up with his mom and like his whole family kind of fell apart. And Frank sees this as an opportunity to like bring Luke and his dad back together, basically. As we go through this episode, we'll find more and more about 
obviously all these people's lives and how they're all connected. I thought it was odd that they felt the need to jam Frank into this story. Like, it just seems like this story could happen without Frank being connected. Like, it doesn't have to be his hometown. I don't think it really lands the way they want it to, but they're just like, oh, one of the characters has to be always connected. Like, last time it was the person's sister. Now it's this guy in his past. And I was like, eh. I agree. It's certainly not the most fully baked idea. What we're going to see over the course of this is Frank never wanted to go home because he had a rough relationship with his father on the farm they worked on. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing in the idea of Frank reconnecting Luke to his father is supposed to be Frank forgiving his own dad. But those two threads don't truly combine very well. And again, it's like you could take out the whole idea of Frank and his dad And it doesn't really hurt the episode at all because it doesn't quite jive together properly. Well, I'm kind of getting on with the episode when Frank kind of pledges to help uh, Luke and his dad get back together. The cafe TV turns on, as it often does, and shows a parade happening on Main Street Zion. The local hero and the main figure of the parade is, wait, happens to be Frank's childhood best friend, Thomas, who just won the Iron Man in Hawaii. What was the Iron Man? Was Was it a race? Oh, the Iron Man? Yeah, it's it's like a... They still do it. It's like a very, like, grueling race. I actually... I'll be honest. I already, at this point, was only half paying attention because it's so boring. I assume that's what it was, but then I was also like, he's a politician. I'm like, is that just his nickname as the politician? Like, he never gives up. He's always pushing forward. Did they say he was a politician? <laughs> For some reason, along the line, I thought he was a politician, but I think maybe I just made that up. <laughs> You just saw him in the parade and we're like, that's got to be the mayor. I I must have. I must have. So sorry, everyone. Um, It's kind of funny because I think we, the audience, as soon as like Frank says, I'm going to help this kid find his dad. And then this man appears on the TV. It's like, oh, so Frank's childhood best friend is this kid's dad. Takes Frank 20 minutes to put that together. This is episode five. Up until this point in the show, and correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, every single character and background person and extra, everyone has been white right? I think you might be correct. I, I can't think of anyone who wasn't. Right. So then <laughs> when they, they cast uh, the, the kid Luke, who's black, and then you find another character who's this guy Thomas, who's black, you just assume they're all connected because it's weird that this show has just never cast anyone with color before. Yeah. I mean, it is certainly a show that has almost no roles of people of color. So it's not hard for the audience to piece these connections together. Yeah. W- whether it was intended or not, it was just one of those things. It was like, uh, okay, sure. They're the only people that look like they might be related. So, I mean, I think that's just a, a flaw in particularly television of this time. There's so little representation. It's pretty easy to figure out where someone's right. going with something. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, Blackie, having, I guess, already known that this Thomas character was Frank's childhood best friend, has already invited him over to the diner. And they like, there's like a scene where the two of them catch up at the diner. Thomas asks Frank why he works in such a dump. And I 100% expected the cafe to punish him, but it never did. And Frank just, uh, he's sort of like, he's like, well, you know, uh, don't ask me about it. You know, it's a long story, life. And, uh. and I was like, all right, I guess it'd be hard to explain that you're floating in limbo and visibly making eggs. It's true. Uh, Thomas talks about how he left his wife recently, and Frank still doesn't put one and one together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's dumb. He's a dumb guy. And then they kind of have a conversation about what it was like being kids and how, like, Frank's really braggy about how he was always better than Thomas at everything. And it's just like, you've just met a guy who clearly is, like, a very successful athlete. There's no way Frank was good at 
better at anything than he was. It's also just a weird thing to like want to one up someone who's clearly going through a like a horrible time in their life right now. That's true. He's mad. He's mad because he works in that dump. (laughs) (laughs) But they kind of talk about one thing when they were kids was this old mine called Pirate's Cave that they used to like dare each other to go inside of. And at the mention of Pirate's Cave, uh, Thomas gets spooked and kind of excuses himself and says they'll get together later. And we're left to think, oh, what's up with this Pirate's Cave they keep talking about? I really thought when they mentioned that, I thought this was going to become a very Stand By Me-esque episode. Like, I thought we were going to get a long flashback and watch them as kids, and that's what this episode is going to be. And maybe that would have been better, maybe not, but that's that's not what they do with this episode at all. It would have tied it to Frank better than this episode does, for sure. Yeah, I guess you're probably right, yeah. Because what basically happens is now Frank steps out of the cafe to go track down Luke because he wants to offer him some lunch. And as he steps at the door of the cafe, he ends up back on the porch of his childhood home where Luke is shooting some basketball. And they kind of talk about Frank's past and like how Frank left home at 18 to join the Navy and his mother died young and his dad died while he was in South America. They buried him on the property, but he's never been back to see the grave because they've had such a such a bad relationship together. And while they're kind of having this conversation, this is when Frank finally pieces together, oh, Thomas is Luke's dad. This whole thing is about me and you and my childhood friends, I guess. Like, you know, the threads start connecting for Frank. And as the kind of conversation wraps up, Luke runs off into a field and disappears. And Frank's a little worried. He's like, oh, where's this kid running off to? So he goes back to the hospital to check on him. And Luke's mom has come by the hospital to take him home to die. Like, it's very depressing. He goes to the hospital. The nurse is like, yeah, his mom came to get his body. They're taking him home. That's where he's going to die in a couple of days. And Frank's just like, oh, yeah, I better get to that home. And when he knocks on uh, Luke's house's door, he gets to meet uh, Luke's mother, who is played by... Angela Bassett. What a get, man. A huge get. This was one year before What's Love Got to Do With It? Really? I was blown away when Angela Bassett opened that door. I was like, this show... There's no way this show deserves this much at this level of an actress. Oh, and did you... I'm going to mention it. Did you notice the other... Not quite as big cameo, but did you notice who played the Doctor later on? I did. Smoking Man from X-Files. <laughs> Yeah, William B. Davis. Yeah. Anyways, so it was it was an action packed uh, uh, episode. People we people we know and like more than the show. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she's playing Evelyn, and she's obviously Thomas's ex wife, but she's also a former friend of Frank's. And um, they kind of chat about Luke in the coma, and Evelyn kind of reveals that what happened to Luke was he got crushed in a cave in back at that old mine while he was trying to impress his dad, and that's sort of how he ended up in this coma and left brain dead. By the way, they say, <laughs> if there's like a drinking game for this show, it's every time someone says brain dead, they say it a lot. That's true, they do They do say it a lot. Don't you think the episode should have been called Brain Dead? It's not a bad title for this show, actually. That would be, what, the title of the show is insane, though, Sanctuary for a Child. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds much uh, more elegant than what this episode actually is. We get a weird scene back at the cafe where some old man drops in, Mr. Cartwright, who knows Frank and knew his dad. And uh, did you catch Frank's nickname in this episode? Oh, well, no, what was it? Uh, Mr. Cartwright's like, hey, there you are, cow pie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because there was some story about how like a bunch of like cow poop fell on him one time. So they called him cow pie. But essentially, this Mr. Cartwright, he's only here for one episode. It's just basically there to be like, don't be too hard on your dead dad. We're from a different generation. And it's kind of just like a brief, I don't know. Like there's all these like brief moments where they're like, oh, we got to try to find some way of tying this back to his father. And that leads into Frank and Faye doing a stroll around his childhood at home. So, so Frank can reveal that the reason him and his dad had such a bad relationship was that Frank used to date Luke's mom, Evelyn, and he wanted to marry her, but his dad was a racist and wouldn't let him. 
Yeah, and so that's and so he left, and I was like, huh, she didn't see that coming. And it's very funny because I think Faye, after he says this, he's like, oh, so that's why we're here. <laughs> um, uh, there's one thing I want to mention. Uh, what was the the old guy's name? Cartwright, the guy that's in the diner. Yes, I was actually excited because when we opened the scene, Faye's just serving this guy, and I thought this is the first time that we've seen just a random person coming to the diner and just eating there because they're operating a diner. But then I was like, oh, no, he actually has to be connected in some way. I was kind of hoping that, like, while they're doing, you know, having their adventures, they have to also, you know, serve up a lot of, like, hash browns. <laughs> you, you would just like them to also be an operating diner, worrying about the bottom line. Yeah, exactly. I think the stakes are much higher. I mean, the stakes in this one are all kind of, like, I mean, they're not bad, but they are a little over the pla- all over the place. Like, Frank now heads off to the gym to challenge Thomas to a one-on-one basketball game and basically confront him about leaving his son and... It gets really aggressive. They're like really wrestling on the basketball court as he's trying to convince him to go visit his son in a coma. Wasn't this basketball action the funniest thing ever? It wasn't exciting at all, but it's just a lot of like them going for layups and then knocking each other over and then like, no, I'm going to make a layup. No, I'm going to make a layup. And it's just like, this is, this is bad. I was so weird. They, cause they, and they also like wrestle on the ground at some point. I'm like, what is yeah. happening here? Yeah. I thought they were going to kiss maybe. They were, they were, they were very mad at each other. That's for sure. <laughs> But essentially what's going to happen is this confrontation does kind of convince him to go visit his son at home. Before we go back to visit the son, there's a quick cutaway to the diner where Faye's hanging out with this 12-year-old kid named Luke. And he's telling Faye about his one regret is that he never got to kiss a girl on the lips. So Faye offers to show him. Yeah, and she does. I literally screamed no at the TV screen. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. It's a weird thing to do. They do handle it as... um sweetly as possible for an inherently creepy scene it's handled as lightly as possible face certainly i think the actress certainly tries to handle it as well as she can but it is just like a really weird scene where it's just like hey how would you like to be pedophiled for a second (laughs) she's like i have to and they're like yeah yeah you got to the tv at the cafe turns on and uh they get to see his his mom evelyn is over his body telling him like hey listen if you're ready to leave your body behind luke i'm ready for you to die so um Let's get this over with, I guess. And it's at this moment that, like, the dad, Frank, returns to his bedside. And they kind of, the whole family gets together. Frank's there, too. There's this, like, confrontation about, like, the mom and Frank saying, you got to be with your son. Like, he's in the room with us. His his spirit is here. And Thomas, the dad, being just like, I don't believe that mumbo jumbo. I, I paid for all his medical stuff. I don't need to be here to watch him die. And they kind of, like, get in a fist fight, like, Frank Frank gets punched in the face when he calls when he basically calls Thomas a coward for hating his weakling son. I get they they want to have this progression of of Thomas's character that he has to learn something along the way, but I I don't know if I ever bought how angry at the underlying issues that he feels as his son is in a coma. It it is the split focus because I think we're told off the top that this is about Frank making peace with his dad, and then we spend so much of the time with. First, Luke trying to get his dad back together, and then suddenly it's about the dad dealing with the idea that his son is in a coma, which is a fine concept, but we, we sort of bounce between so many ideas. Like, like after all this happens, Thomas, the dad, he runs off, goes into the woods, looks at the old mine, then he suddenly appears at the cafe because he wants to apologize to Frank for punching him in the face. And when he steps into the kitchen, he's now transported inside of the old mine where he's shot at all Dutch angles. <laughs> I know they were trying to have the connection because he goes into the mine and he sees, I think it was his name written and Frank's name written. And then just Luke had written his name as well. And I was like, are they the only people that have ever been in there? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's. I mean, and even adding Frank's name to it was like a little muddling the idea. But you know, the idea that Thomas carved his name into a beam when he was a kid, and then Luke went in there and carved his name nearby because he idolizes his dad. Fine, but like, it is weird that Frank's name is all like they were like Frank's not really that important to this father's son story. Doesn't really work, but they keep trying to jam it in, and it's this weird thing I think that the show overall has a problem, which is always wanting to have either Faye or Frank, most likely Frank be involved in some way and it's just like they don't really need to be i also i i i I do know that they they carve their names into the the board but when i watched i'm like that just looks like chalk did they just write their name on chalk there's no way that stayed for 20 years i mean it was super cheap yeah that's what it was (laughs) it did like it didn't even look like it was weathered or anything like there was like it just looked like a one of these set guys had to like throw that together in 30 seconds like, while, while they were setting the lights up, they're like, oh, quick, we forgot. Here, just carve the name in. And all the writing is exactly, like, it's like, all the writing is exactly the same. It looks like it was all written by the same person. That'd have been a funnier thing if uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Thomas goes in and goes, wait a minute. Did my son just write all of our names on this? <laughs> How did he know Frank's name? And then he, he finds out that Frank's actually been having a relationship with him because he's always kissing adults. <laughs> Like, there is that weird thing when they introduce the idea that he used to date Evelyn. They kind of toy with the idea that, like, he's also kind of like it's Frank's son. But they never quite, like, lead into it. But there seems to be this, like, undercurrent of just like, oh, but it's also like Frank's helping his own son he could have had. Yeah, I guess that's true. But I, they never really leaned into it. But I was just like, this is so weird. Yeah, the whole episode is odd. Anyway, what ends up happening here is that uh, the ceiling collapses, trapping... Thomas under a, uh, you know, a bunch of debris, like his own son was trapped once. Sort of that that mirroring of his son's tri- uh, like trial yeah. experience, something like that. Yeah, and it's we should say, it's not clear if this is actually happening or if it's just a, a sort of an illusion from the cafe. I, I would lean to illusion because very quickly, uh, like a search party comes in looking for him, led by Blackie dressed as a doctor. No, but it's not even just a doctor. He's he's dressed like an old timey doctor with like that like uh, that sort of circular light shiny thing on his forehead like he's Bugs Bunny dressing up as a doctor. He's got that mirror that mirror headband. Yeah. Basically, the search party can't see him. Blackie starts talking about it's like because he's dressed as a doctor. I think we're supposed to get from his dialogue that he's like, well, I guess he's not here, uh, so we should just all give up and go home. I think they're trying to imply like the doctors gave up Luke for brain dead. And now the dad is realizing what Luke is going through by everyone feeling like he does he's not in his body anymore? Uh, no, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I think you read into that way more than I did. I didn't get that connection at all. I thought it was just like, he's like, oh, this is what my son went through. So, yeah. Like, I did, I just, but I think you might be right about the doctor. I only think that because he was dressed as a doctor and they did a, there was like this moment where it's just like, no one can see him, so he doesn't exist. I think like this weird like this is his ironic comeuppance or something but it all it all lasts a very short period of time because the tv turns on at the cafe where luke is he sees his dad in the mine so he he materializes next to his father and they have a quick heart to heart where he apologizes to his son for abandoning him in his coma and then luke runs off to get help and frank materializes in the in the in the mine and pulls him out of the wreckage and then they go back to the cafe and they have like you know he hugs his son and it's just like oh they're reunited for a second and then there's like another hard cut, and now Thomas is hugging his comatose son's body. Like it's all as if this is the editing, and this is this weird like chain of thought kind of thing, I guess. So I guess we're supposed to think all of this happened in his head, and he's always just been in this bedroom hugging his son. Maybe the, the way it edited, it was just like as if he. It could be that he's all experiencing, or that he's actually 
materializing in different places or it's just the way it's cut it's different time but either way the point is they have a nice big hug they have a nice big hug it's a little bit one-sided though (laughs) (laughs) he he would hug back if he could (laughs) thomas's wife evelyn enters the room they have a heartbreaking speech about how it's time to say goodbye to luke and then luke finally dies in this episode the the young boy (laughs) finally passes away you were hoping since the beginning you're like i can't wait for this kid to die and we 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 jump back to Faye, Faye, Frank, and Blackie watching this all on the uh, cafe TV as they always voyeuristically watch. And uh, who should walk through the door but uh, young Luke. He's, uh, his spirit is still there. And we're going to come up to it, but it is the funniest thing ever. But so <laughs> Luke comes and he basically is like, uh, everything's okay. It's all good. And like, I'm, I'm so glad you guys all, this all happened. And then he le- he opens the door to the cafe and like leaves in a beam of light. Off to heaven. Off to heaven, I guess. And at that point, <laughs> I don't know if anyone remembers the old song, but it's called The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics. It's the cheesiest song, and it starts playing, and they go hard into it like an emotional moment. And I laughed and laughed and laughed, and I had to stop the episode to continue laughing because it's the stupidest thing ever, and it's hilarious. It's a, real, it's a real strong music cue. Did you, did you like when the, the light of heaven streamed into the cafe that Blackie had to put on a pair of sunglasses because he's like the devil? It's too hard for him to yeah, look at. Yeah, yeah, whatever. The, the point is, Mike and the Mechanics, it's hilarious. There's a great scene too where the TV turns on and they show the husband and wife sitting outside of the house, theoretically 15 minutes later. And they're like, hey, let's try this marriage out again. What do you say? They're like, yeah, okay the role is so there's nothing to work with right she's just like that the dad comes back and he's like yeah so i know i left when things got tough but i guess i'm back now and she's like all right why not why not it's like well there's lots of reasons why not and as as that music swells we cut to frank's father's grave on the farm and frank standing it over over it finding a letter that evelyn the wife has left on the grave for frank that states before Frank's dad died. He dropped by her house and apologized for being a racist. Yeah, so everything's good. And he's just like, well, I didn't know you had it in, you old man. All's forgiven. <laughs> and that's the end of this episode as the music swells to to the fade to black. This was their most touched by an angel episode. <laughs> I'll say this, though. I think this was not a good episode. It was stupid and cheesy. And you're right. It's like touched by an angel. However, in terms of, oh, I think, what they were going for and how close they got to it, I think this is one of the closer ones. Now, I'm not saying that's good, but it's like, for what they were trying to do, I think they were a little bit more consistent. They're getting better. For sure, they're like, their tone's not, like, awesome, but they're getting better at it, for sure. But, well, as you say that, we still have to talk about episode six, Aliens Ate My Lunch. Yes, here's the IMDb summary for episode six. Sid, it's me, Harry. Oh, man, we are in the chips. This is going to be the National Conspirer's defining moment. All right, here's your headline. Aliens terrorize small town. Farmers fight back. Dateline, Fort Weatherhill. Byline, yours truly, Harry B. Tambor. Anyway, they can trace it to us. No, man, not as long as they, uh, <clears throat> you know, kill the aliens. When a desperate tabloid writer concocts a story about a small town alien invasion... His simple lie snowballs out of control. That was courtesy of Michael Hoffman. Luke, I listened to this three, four times, and I still don't know what the town was. Is it Fort Weathervale? I also couldn't quite make it out. I wrote Weather L, but I couldn't hear it either. Yeah, anyway, so it's it's in some 
fake made up town. And what we the main thing we're going to learn about in this episode is Frank loves gossip magazines like the National Enquirer. So what do you call those? What's the actual technical term for them? A tabloid. Tabloid. There you go. <laughs> A gossip Frank. Anyways, he loves those. We've never seen that before uh, in any of the previous episodes. But this episode we learn he loves tabloids. You know what else is a big deal about this episode? What's that? Written and directed by Wes Craven. Really? I didn't notice that. And it's um, it's not good. I think we early on assumed this is just something he did for money. But quite clearly, if he wrote and directed another episode, this episode is his baby. <laughs> just before we were recording, I was uh, talking to you about how I'd, um, I was reading some interviews and some reviews of this show. Um, there was one interesting one from a Vancouver newspaper where this was filmed in 1992. And they were talking to the actors and, stu- and uh, Wes Craven and blah, blah, blah on set. And he said that he had had some bad experiences with TV because he felt like he'd had the creative control taken away from him. So when he made this show, he really wanted to make sure that it was exactly as he wanted it. So he was on set every day. He was giving his notes. He was involved. Uh, so I think the idea that, you know, he just gave his name, it, 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 it's not there. Like, this is what the show, this is the show he wanted it to be. This is his heavily fingerprinted version. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But yes, as you're saying, the whole episode is kind of about Frank loves reading the National Conspirer. Wink. Yeah, well done, huh? And Faye basically states the thesis off the top because he says, check out this story. President has an evil twin locked in an asylum. And Faye is like, Frank, you shouldn't read those. Those stories can hurt people. And we're basically going to watch an episode about fake news. Yeah, I guess in, in a lot of ways. The cafe TV turns on. We see the inside of the editor's office in the National Conspirer where Blackie is now wearing a toupee pretending to be the editor there, smoking a big cigar. I assumed, because when we were seeing people's memories or they were redoing the past, that he was simply taking the place of someone who would have been there. Right. But in this, we find out, like, the editor's, like, stepped out of his office for a few minutes and then blackie has gone there i assume that he like took over their body or something right you assumed it was a possession but in fact the uh, the guy was just out getting a coffee yeah so every time we've seen him as someone like when he was a cab driver the cab driver was using the washroom and he stole his cab when he was the tattoo artist the tattoo artist had gone out for a sandwich and he became the tattoo artist that's what we're supposed to believe now i think i think that is the case okay oh good okay so that's clear we'll just know that's that's what the show has decided Editor Blackie is talking to the writer of these uh, tabloid stories, a man named Harry, and he's basically saying, we're tired of your celebrity gossip stories like Demi Moore pregnant with Bigfoot child because it costs too many lawsuits. Was that was that the actual headline? Yeah. Huh. Demi Moore was a great uh, tabloid uh, fodder at that time. Yeah. Harry said not to worry about it. She'd get over it. (laughs) (laughs) that's true um and he wants basically the writer harry to go to the boonies and find him a more down-to-earth story something like aliens ate my lunch and now i didn't quite get um harry's irritation the whole point of if his character is not that he wants to be writing better journalism but that he wants to be writing higher quality tabloid pieces it's hard to say i think he likes writing about celebrities because it's easy and he's clearly a lazy writer. I mean, at some point when he writes his actual story about these alien abductions, he literally just calls the editor and dictates the story to him. Like, we never see this writer write one word. Okay, because that, that's why I, I didn't think it was very clear as to why. Because he seems very frustrated he has to do these sorts of things. I'm like, is there that much difference of making up a celebrity story and making up a story about aliens? You're still just making it up. What does it matter? 
Yeah, I think he regrets being sent off to, like, the boonies to have to go write a story in person, which, to be fair, no reason he has to go there. Right, because he's just going to make it up. And uh, we know things are going to get interesting, though, because they cut away from him leaving to go to the boonies to a shot of cows in a farmer's field, and one of the cows starts to levitate. Yeah, it looks like it's getting uh, uh, transported up by, uh, by uh, seemingly by an alien. Um, and again, this episode, the, the cafe has shown up in a small town on some deserted road. And as they're opening, a, a small town sheriff walks in and is confused to how a cafe has shown up here overnight. This was interesting because they didn't mention in the last episode where the same sort of thing. They just, the cafe just shows up, but everyone's kind of cool with it. Um, I guess old Iron Man didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't keeping track of what was being constructed in the, in the town. But yes, the sheriff immediately has, uh, uh, has his backup because there's this building suddenly built in the middle of the country. He kind of writes it off as a prefab franchise and like he set off as a dirtbag right away because he immediately sexually harasses Faye and then asks Blackie to first permits and takes a bribe when Blackie doesn't have permits. And the sheriff kind of was just talking about how, hey, in this area of the country, people really love their cows. They're really protective of them. That's why I charge them all a special protection tax to keep their cows safe. Like, we're supposed to think that this man is basically a uh, some sort of small-town gangster just extorting money out of everyone. Here's the thing. Uh, I, I hate to—I'm not trying to d- defend this clearly dirtbag uh, uh, sheriff, but the scene where he's seemingly hitting on, on Faye, it seemed— not appropriate, but it seemed pretty innocuous, didn't it? He was just like, hey, sweetheart. She's like, wait a minute. I was like, all right. It's not like he wasn't being like a well, huge rapscallion or anything. I think he made some comments about her breast. <laughs> oh, ba- okay. I, maybe I missed that. I think I think he was kind of like, what's for breakfast? He's like, I'd love some jugs of milk or something. <laughs> There's no way that was the line. Was that the line? That's not the exact line, but there was some indication of just like he wanted to like try her cookies out or something. Oh, I see. Okay. I like the jugs of milk, though. That's good. I mean, that's the level of writing on this show. Right, right. We cut back to Harry, and he's on the road now, driving through this farming community, trying to think of what a, a good story would be. He, need, he, know he, he knows he needs a hook. It's funny. As he's driving, one of the titles he pitches to himself is uh, Tractors of the Gods. <laughs> and on the side of the road, he sees three hitchhikers. Here's the thing about this. So the, the three hitchhikers we see, they're all little people. They're going to kind of try to ride that line of what's offensive or not they do do some like short jokes which you just know the show's gonna do but weirdly and this is not really defense not nearly as many as i thought they were gonna do yeah it is, i also was just like oof this is gonna get rough and it it isn't so bad they, they're playing a uh, three brothers the the bugatti brothers who um Every time they're asked where they're from, it's always a different European country. So we're not supposed to like fully trust them. But they say they're on their way to join the Ringling Brothers Circus, which is probably not great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, get ready. They're going to be all through this episode. Yeah. Frank picks or Frank Harry, the writer, picks them up and they they set off. And he's like hoping he can use them somehow for a story. As they drive down the street, we get to see a UFO shadow following the car. Mm hmm. Um, they finally, of course, arrive at the cafe, as all people must. And um, Harry originally goes in by himself and is, is, is sort of like asking the sheriff a bit because the, the, the three brothers mentioned that there's been the uh, cows going missing in the area. So Harry's asking the sheriff at the diner, like, hey, can I like interview you about the missing cows? And can I get a photo of you for the story? And the sheriff's into it. He goes to the bathroom to kind of like check his hair and make sure he'll look good for the photo. And while he's in there, he hears someone in the bathroom stall. 
Yeah, so he opens the stall, and there's a cow there. And he's like, what? So he, like, backs up. And when he backs up, he's suddenly on a farm. Yes, he's he finds himself on a farm with the cow and the bathroom stall. And he's just like, well, I've been drugged by those cattle rustlers who are at the cafe. I gotta, I gotta go back there and, like, teach them a lesson? Yeah, I, I, I didn't know what the point of the cafe sending him there was. It was very unclear, I, I agree. Because we cut back to the cafe. Harry's waiting for the sheriff to return from the bathroom. And Faze delivered the sheriff's special to him, which is under a lid. You know how cafes serve your food under a lid? Yeah, the, the cafes that serve like it's a, a, a stereotypical fine dining of a French restaurant. So Harry opens the dish and a, a snake pops out and tries biting him and he, and he closes the dish. And what I like is he's just like, he's not as freaked out as one would be if that happened. Yeah, it's like an anaconda puppet. It's so big, has popped out of the like the like actual counter and is attacking him, puts the lid back on and he says, what was that? And Faye's like, it's the special. He's like, well, then I'll have eggs and bacon. Another gag from this show. Did you uh, did you catch what the uh, what they call eggs and bacon at the cafe? Oh, I know that they did one of those like annoying like nickname things. What do they call it? When he orders eggs and bacon, Faye shuts back to Frank and says, uh, give me a beat up chicken kids and strips of fat old pig stomach. <laughs> so, honestly, though, I know that's like a thing, but like that doesn't save any time. You assume you'd say things that save time. That's that's way harder than saying eggs and bacon. It just it gives you like a homespun feel at that diner. It makes you want to go back. Yeah. Oh, one quick thing. Right here, we we find out that um, Frank's love of uh, tabloids because he's excited to meet Harry. Did you did you write down the story that uh, Frank realizes right away? He's like, oh, you're the writer of James Dean haunts Beverly Hills Porsche dealer. I do remember that. It was very funny. <laughs> And I was like, so these are the stories that he's he's excited about. This is what Frank loves to read. Frank is an idiot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's at this point that those Bugatti brothers that Harry left in his car for some reason decide to enter the cafe. And they they come in. They want to eat something. One of them sexually harasses Faye because I guess that's what her role is this episode. I wrote the same thing. Is all her character is supposed to do is get hit on. That's That's apparently what her character is like. Even in the last episode, they have nothing to do with Faye. Her only scene was kissing a little kid. Well, and even when she's being sexually harassed this time, the soundtrack is... Yeah, because the joke is, wouldn't it be hilarious if a little person hit on someone who's taller? Isn't that hilarious? I know. It was was pretty bad. It was pretty offensive. Let's say you, you pick up some hitchhikers. What is the etiquette? Would you normally go into a diner and have food and leave them in the car? Well, he even promised them lunch because he wants them to help with his story. So for him to abandon them in the car seemed very rude. Is his plan he's going to bring them takeout because he doesn't want to be seen with them? Like, I didn't understand. I don't know. But when they finally come in, I guess Harry's put together what his plan is because he picks up the payphone, calls his editor blackie and tells him that he's like hey i've got an idea send me a bunch of things including kid-sized costumes and then we get a montage where harry travels around the small town and like very pointedly asks people in the small town about alien abductions happening in their city and basically you know he stirs the pot in the small town now everyone's talking about alien abductions they're like visiting the sheriff they're, a posse is getting thrown together with rifles like he basically really like stirs some shit up and it's uh, all culminates in this evening where he's going to pretend there's uh, a ufo flying by 
Yeah, we we cut back to that night at the cafe. The Bugatti brothers are still there. One's been eating nonstop hamburgers. One's been chugging bottles of hot sauce. And another's just been drinking glass after glass of milk. Yeah, it's like, aren't they weird? Harry returns with a comically large box. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's a box because he's got, he's all the supplies. He's, he's ready to go. He's just like his editor, Blackie, has sent him a giant cardboard box full of things. He rounds up the Bugatti brothers. They head out and Faye wishes she knew what he was up to. She gets sent there, but she's not really sent to where they are. She gets sent to no. like she's like among the among the townsfolk. Yeah, I know. The cafe still doesn't listen well. Like she literally could have just walked out of her door probably and she'd be in that crowd. We see what Harry's up to. Basically, he's built an elaborate UFO. Like it's about the size of a small Volkswagen. I think really what it is is it's supposed to look a little makeshift, but when you see it going in the sky, you can't tell how how crappy it is. But he goes through the whole thing of like having it go in the air and he has his lights of his car going and he's making sound effects. How does he make it fly? Well, this is a question because at first it looked like they were going to be flying a kite or something, but but then the the like the spaceship just got in the air, right? Like, and I was like, how did it get up there? My understanding is they've tied this Volkswagen-sized UFO to a kite, and then they fly the kite in the air, and it pulled the UFO up with it. I mean, sure, sure, why not? I mean, I don't know if the physics makes sense, but that's the plan. And so. He has it go up in the sky and the lights and sounds and all the townsfolk people start uh, freaking out. And then he has the the ship crash. He sets off fireworks because that's what uh, a spacecraft crashing into the, the ground makes is fireworks. The townspeople run over to find the crash. And this is where he's now sent out uh, silhouetted by the lights of his car is the three little people dressed up as aliens so that the, the townsfolk think aliens have crashed. Yeah, and... He's making noises on his megaphone being like, we come in peace. And, you know, the sheriff, who we know is evil, he's lining up a shot to blow the head off one of these aliens. Faye has to step in and trip him so he so she so she he doesn't kill one of these aliens. Who really tripped over that, didn't I? <laughs> and when the townsfolk sort of open fire on the Bugatti brothers, Harry just gets in his car and leaves them there to die. Yeah, he's uh, he's a dirtbag. It's interesting. And it's also interesting because the sheriff, like, talks the town into killing the aliens because apparently the entire town is in Chapter 11. And if they stuff the alien bodies, they're all excited by the tourism that'll draw. Well, this is something I'll talk about a little later. But what they're kind of trying to play with is that idea that, you know, like, the greatest threat in society is not from a foreign invader, but from fear and divisiveness within themselves. But that's not really what they do because the town just goes right away and they just i don't think this show's smarter smarter subtle enough to really pull that off but i think at their aspirations that's what they're looking for here yeah i agree this is this is about how our worst inclinations can lead to death kind of thing but that's not what the show is it's it's just the sheriff going let's kill him and they go yeah let's kill him and you're like oh, okay uh wasn't that the also the ending plot to uh freaky links episode with the squid arm guy where the town became a hot spot for alien sightings Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. It's funny that that's a theme, the idea that, like, small towns need alien settings for tourism. Oh, and pretty soon uh, is my favorite part of the episode is when uh, Blackie quotes Hitler. What? Don't you remember? No. I I don't know the exact uh, quote from Mein Kampf, but at one point, Blackie's, you know, being uh, all erudite. And he says, oh, it was a a man uh, way back when who said, uh, you know, if you tell a big enough lie and tell it enough times, everyone will believe it. And I was like, is he quoting Hitler? And yes, he is. He's quoting Hitler. 
Wes Craven, get it together. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it leads to a scene where the townsfolk chase the Bugatti brothers around the forest with Faye trying to shoot them. Frank, like, punches a guy through the TV and then appears in the forest, too. They're, like, basically chased around. They finally corner them. The townspeople corner the brothers and the and the guys from the cafe. I love how fast you went over the fact that, uh, because just because this show is what it is, that Frank just punched someone through a TV. <laughs> That's just like, yeah, it, it just happened. It doesn't matter. I know. It is it's insane. Frank's just like, oh, no, he's going to shoot them. I better punch him. So he punches the TV, but it punches through the tv i don't know it doesn't matter it's just like yeah it happens another thing that happens the show the the townsfolk surround them at some point with their guns out and the the sheriff like the townsfolk are like i don't know sheriff these look like human beings to me and the sheriff's like they're shapeshifters we gotta kill them so the sheriff shoots frank in the shoulder and this answers a question though that i had had for all the podcasts we've talked about this that i kept saying there's no stakes in this show because both frank and Faye are dead so what is the point? But what we learn here is they can get injured. And then I believe Blackie tells them in the next couple scenes that if they die outside the cafe, they die again. And that's it. Their their second chance is done. Yeah, they are essentially, we're essentially told they are alive again. And if they die, they will be permanently dead. Yeah. Episode six, last episode. That's what the rules is, everyone. Anyway, they end up like getting back into the cafe while hiding behind a, a tree because Blackie is watching it all on tv and wishes they were there to see it too so they're they they stumble back inside of the cafe the townsfolk very quickly are able to get from the woods into the cafe where they just like teleported like it takes half a like not even half a minute they're they're already inside the cafe as well yeah I, very confusing they bust in they're trying to round up the aliens and he thinks the sheriff now thinks the cafe is a space pod that's what he says right yeah the Bugatti brothers try to run away and they run out the back door of the cafe, which just opens into space and they just fall into space. Yeah, of course they do. The vo- they just fall into the void of space. There's another, <laughs> sorry to keep uh, derailing this, but there's another line that I liked because another line that Blackie said, he makes some sort of joke again about how old he is. Right. And he says, the last time I've been uh, attacked was with a crossbow. And it's like, oh, he's so old. But here's, what's, <laughs> here's what made me laugh with that. He says crossbow, but then what he does is he makes a motion for a bow and arrow. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, but a bow and arrow and crossbow are two different things. But then I realized crossbow doesn't have like, it's evocative of nothing to make an, like a, uh, to make an action for it. So I'm like, why don't they just say bow and arrow then? I mean, you make a good point, but it was already written on the page and Wes Craven was like, stick to the script. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that has nothing to do with anything. That's just me looking for stuff because I'm bored. Yeah. The, the sheriff basically rounds up Faye, Frank and Blackie carts them outside and lines them up for a firing squad yeah because that's what a town would do and he's basically telling the town who's very confused about these people who look like human beings like don't worry they're shapeshifters and we'll all shoot at the same time so nobody will be guilty harry the writer returns to the show now he's had a change of heart since he left about leaving the bogatti brothers to die yeah, he's had his redemption, which doesn't make any sense. It's not clear as to what changed his mind about letting these people get murdered, who he clearly left to be murdered. But he comes back and he's just like, hey, if you execute these people, I'll write a story about it and everybody will know about it. And so the sheriff's like, okay, uh, get into the uh, execution line as well. You're getting shot. Yeah, but before they can shoot, suddenly a beam of light hits them. And it's even better. Oh, no, that's right. They first see the spaceship. There's a big, long looking tubular sort of spaceship like a huge miniature comes out of the clouds 
that disembarks a smaller flying saucer. It's like not like obviously this level of effects, but pretty close to like a close encounters of a third kind suddenly at the end of the episode. The flying saucer goes over them, beam beam of light happens. Frank starts could not be slower. He starts going up into the sky at like oh, yeah. just the the slowest crawl ever. Harry's getting dragged away by aliens because he he prayed to God that someone would save him and the alien showed up. And then uh, there's like a kind of a tussle. The sheriff grabs Faye, but she breaks free. Frank punches him. All the town folk run off because they're afraid of the alien spaceship. And then I think they go back to the cafe now, right? Yeah, they all basically in this tussle while the, while the alien spaceship's sucking up Harry. They end up like back in the cafe with the sheriff. The sheriff gets bonked to the head with a frying pan, so he's out of the action. And then the whole cafe starts shaking, and the, the front door opens at a beam of light, and it's 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 opening into the alien spacecraft now. And yeah. dozens of cows start pouring out of the alien spacecraft. Yeah, and, and immediately they're just like, hey, it's all those cows that were missing. And yeah, the cows wander out of the cafe to the waiting townsfolk who are so happy to have their cows returned to them. But then, <laughs> this show, and then, so all the people are happy. And then suddenly, out of the light, in reverse image of what we saw in the last episode, they come out of the light, and uh, it's the three little people, but they actually are aliens. Can you believe it? And what do they say their names are? Yeah, their names are Earth, Wind, and Fire. (laughs) Yeah. They've been here studying humanity, abducting cows for a project, and one of them goes to pull off his human mask, a la Mission Impossible or something. And underneath his human mask, he is the mascot to a sports team. <laughs> it is it is funny because the effect they have, they, you know, they don't do it in one take either. There's a couple cuts in there of him taking off his human face and underneath is a bird's head that is so large it would never fit in the human head. But anyways, <laughs> the effect is not of a realistic looking bird. The effect, you're right, is of a school mascot. So you're like, oh, okay. So under... Under the skin is an, a guy in a costume. There, yeah. There, I guess they. This alien race is all giant, feathery birds. Anyways, <laughs> so, anyway, it's so dumb. But uh, but then an even weirder moment happens. They're like they're having a chat about uh, whatever aliens, and then a giant. What do you call it? Like hairball? Like hairball rolls in. They called it a hairball. Yeah, it rolls in, and you can see it's got like little clear spots, and you can see that Harry's in it. So it's like he's in some sort of cage but the hate cage is a giant hairball and the ship sounds like it's coughing him up when it rolls out like it's rejected harry i guess so he's like trapped in a hairball and like so excited to be freed and then earth wind and fire our alien friends come out grab the sheriff and drag him onto the alien spaceship and then leave yeah what happens is the end of the episode all townspeople are outside they've forgiven the aliens and now want to open a museum to honor their artifacts and like they have harry in his in his fur ball or his hair ball because that's going to be one of their core artifacts or something and harry pops out taking photos saying this is the story of my career and then the weirdest thing happens and and luke i don't know what you thought if this was added because they knew this was the last episode or this is just what they wanted for the episode but we think the episode's over now but what we get is sort of like still shots of the characters that we've met in this episode and a scrolling text telling us what happened. Yeah, it's like the end of Animal House where we get to find out what became of all these characters. <laughs> and it's it's so weird. Like, it's just basically like, and then this guy wrote a story and then these townspeople got their cows back. And then I don't remember what it said about Frank, Frank and Faye, but it was like, and they stayed there to have more adventures. 
Well, I can I can tell you basically a, a, a summary of what was said is they says Harry wrote a big Hollywood screenplay about the event. Yeah. Earth, Wind and Fire were promoted to be captains in the fleet and also stopped by Mexico to buy 15 tons of hot sauce on their way out of the door because they love to drink hot sauce. Yeah. The sheriff became a cow importer on an alien planet where he became known affectionately as Papa Big Cheese. Yeah, which I love, Papa Big Cheese. So he wasn't punished for being evil. He became a successful cattle baron on an alien planet? <laughs> sure. And yeah, it ends and says, Thank Flay and Blackie, continue to work at a cafe. Went great. And that's it. That's the end of the episode. Wild, wild ending to the episode for sure. That bird taken off a face, that was a highlight though. That was a highlight. There, there were a few moments that were kind of fun in this one, but like tonally it was all over the place. I really thought about halfway through that it was going to be like that Twilight Zone episode. I think it's one of their more famous episodes, The Monsters Are Doing Maple Street. It's sort of like a very well done examination of how how easily we all can turn on our neighbors to protect ourselves and how paranoia can destroy us. But that's not what this was as we as we went through. It was just like, a wouldn't it be funny if this happened? And then wouldn't it be funny if this happened? And maybe there's a point to it, but probably not. I mean, this, the basic idea I think he's trying to get across is because the tabloid lighter made up a lie. It spirals out of control and he can't stop it. That's like the idea behind the episode. But like, it's so broad and slapstick that like, it's not like that's going to land very hard with anyone. So do you want to rate these final two episodes? Yeah, but first I'm just going to have a little commercial talk. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I do know that they they kept uh, advertising, uh, I think, two of the shows we've seen before. Well, that's just what I'm going to say is there's a commercial for Steel Justice. (laughs) Steel Justice and Man and Machine. I was like, man, this was a bad lineup for uh, for NBC. I can't believe all of these were on NBC at the same time. It blew my mind. I'm just like, you're promoting Man and Machine, and now I'm getting a commercial for the Robosaurus of Steel Justice. Robosaurus does not appear in the commercial. <laughs> and not only that, but it's from Nightmare Cafe. So it's a bad show promoting a bad TV movie and also promoting another bad show. It felt like it was just for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine that it was just other old shows we've seen i'm like why are they advertising gemini man i mean i'm still shocked that th- in this year of the podcast we watched all three of these things that were That's apparently true. airing the- around the same time it's like we watched six months of nbc <laughs> just it was our our favorite year is uh, uh nbc's 92 lineup <laughs> exactly all right let- let's get into ratings then jordan what do you want to give sanctuary for a child Okay, I'm going to give this higher than it probably deserves. But again, as I mentioned before, it's not their worst episode. It's not their best episode. But I think it came as close as they've come to achieving the tone in an episode that they had hoped. Um, even though every episode, it seems like they're going for something different. So I'm going to give this one a 5 out of 10. 5 out of 10. I think I'm in agreement. I may push it over slightly to 5.5 because I feel like they're doing okay yeah feels like the best they can do is just like just to get over average by half a point yeah it's just like the best they could do is just get through it and what about uh aliens ate my breakfast again it's not even a bad episode it's silly it's supposed to be silly it's dumb i think it's supposed to be dumb i just think nothing really landed and i found it just it was so all over the place and kind of boring and i just thought there was opportunities that were all missed so i'm gonna give this one a three out of ten yeah, you know what? I feel exactly the same way. Like, it was broad and weird and kind of funny to be like, this is what Wes Craven wanted to do. But as an actual, like, episode of TV to watch, I think a three is, like, right on the money. What's our final score of this uh, six episodes? 
Well, let's let's look at the entire series rating for uh, the average we've given to uh, old Nightmare Cafe. Let me just punch it into the old Continuum Drag computer here. All right, Jordan, are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. It is 4.38. Yeah, not great. Yeah. I mean, would you recommend anyone watch the show? I don't think I would because I think the people that maybe would be interested are Freddy Krueger fans or horror fans, but that's not really what this show is. And it, it, I mean, it's not horror at all. And it's also not even really for Twilight Zone-esque fans or people who like that kind of uh, uh, standalone episodes of kind of interesting ideas. It's not that, it's just a, it's just not a good show. And it's like, I don't know who would like this. I don't think anyone would. I agree because it's not as good as the Twilight Zone and doesn't really work. It's not a horror show. And like, I would say it's best episodes. And I've said it a million times before already, but like they maybe mimic an touched by an angel, but there's only maybe two that are that wholesome. And I don't think a fan of that show would like the rest of the episodes. So I don't think this is for anyone. Well, think of this show of, of a couple episodes we've seen. There's the the one we watched for this this podcast, the Touched by an Angel, the kids dying episode. Imagine you watch that and then watch the episode where Faye is trying to nail that guy's wife, and it's like as close to a soft core porn as you could have. I like that you said Faye. Oh, uh, sorry, Frank. Frank is that'd be a better episode. When, when Frank is, it's like it's so wildly different, but not in an interesting way. It it doesn't feel like you don't know what you're going to get every week. It's like, oh, we're going to try something and fail every week. That's basically what you're getting. Yeah. Imagine you're a guy who's like really into uh, TV softcore, and then you had to watch uh, Sanctuary for a Child. Oh, you'd be <laughs> <Yeah>. so mad. <laughs> exactly. So anyways, it's not good. Well, that wraps it up for us on Old Nightmare Cafe and actually wraps it up for us on year two. Mm-hmm. So next week, I think we're going to drop a little like hiatus announcement, but we're going to have some fun retrospective of year two. We're going to have uh, surprising announcements. Who knows what's going to happen next week? <laughs> I'm surprised that we're having announcements. But that's a wrap on this season. Uh, if you want to come back next week, we'll do a little talk, chit chat, and then uh, let you know when we're coming back. But uh, listener, thank you for coming on this ride through Nightmare Cafe with us. If you want to email us about Nightmare Cafe, you can get us at continuandrag at gmail.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, we're definitely going to have bird aliens. We're going to have, I don't know, guys getting punched through TVs, maybe. There's stuff. There's stuff. There's stuff. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's lots of that stuff. And, and, and it saves you from having to watch the show. We'll have commercials for Men and Machine and Steel Justice. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, listener, thank you for joining us. And Jordan, we'll see you next week for a little retrospective on two years together. All right. We'll see you then. Continuum Dreg is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rick Siedler. Produced by Jordan Delick and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Younes, Adam Wheatner, Jeff Hanley, Jane McRae, and Stephen Packard.